Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today we're focusing on hard truths and life lessons, hip memoirs of extraordinary experiences. My first guest is Neil Strauss. Today we are talking about the C word. Now don't let your mind go to some naughty place. We're talking about commitment and we're talking about a hipster's view to love, intimacy, and connection. My first guest today is Neil Strauss. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Game, Rules of the Game, Emergency, and Everyone You Love When You're Dead. He's also the co-author of four other New York Times bestsellers, Kevin Hart's Life Lessons, Jenna Jameson, Motley Crue's The Dirt, and Marilyn Manson's The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. Strauss is my neighbor up in Malibu, and we're talking about his newest book, The Truth, an eye-opening odyssey through love, addiction, and extraordinary relationships. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Lisa. And it's so, the word hipster is so funny because I think you automatically date yourself by calling or age yourself by calling anyone a hipster, right? Since no one under a certain age probably even uses that word. I know, but I'm like that person. I have become that person. I don't know about you, but... <laughs> yeah, it happens when you live out here in Malibu. I think it's a, it's a choice to step out of the flow of life in some sense and, and step into the flow of what you talk about on your show, happiness and uh, connection. Happiness, connection, good stuff. So you know what? I misread or misspoke the subtitle of your book, and I'm going to do that again because it's so much more juicy with the full thing. The Truth, an eye-opening odyssey through love addiction, sex addiction, and extraordinary relationships. I think that has more more punch to it personally. Yes, yes, slightly more punch. I'm sure nobody noticed, but (laughs) So let's talk about infidelity. And like, are humans hardwired to be faithful to one person? Yeah, it's interesting because just quick, quick context that the book's really sort of a a journey. And I found myself unable, just 
failing at relationships. Either I'd pick the wrong person, I'd be the wrong person, they would cheat, I would cheat, we'd, or we'd end up in what they call a parallel relationship where it's sort of two people living separate lives under one roof uh, as opposed to a hot relationship where you're both just arguing and all the time in a power struggle. So eventually I just sort of realized if all my partners are not working out, it's probably not a matter of finding the right person. It's just that something is just hard. Something's wrong with me. And mm. I began the book with is, is, is it just me or is it society? Are we sort of being fed this, you know, this kind of ninth century Catholic dogma, which is when the church decreed that monogamy was the way to be and marriage and, you know, but Hey, what does love have to do with the church and the state and all this? So, so I kind of went on this journey and I had, I began, it's so funny. So when you, for me, when you write a book, you surrender the process of it. You don't write with, this is my idea and this is what I want to say. You write like, this is what I think it's about. And then as you research and you, and you, and you live it, uh, you actually will find hopefully the truth. So, so it started one way, ended another way. So it's a way of answering The short answer to the question is if you look at science and you look at evolution, like monogamy doesn't make sense. And this is not where it's going to end up. So, so if you look at that, it doesn't make sense because most, not only most animals, not monogamous, but the ones we previously thought to be monogamous, uh, it turned out were only socially monogamous. They actually, uh, cheat, uh, and have children with other, other, other animals. Next is genetically, they actually found a gene for monogamy <laughs> that I talked to the, to the uh, scientist who did it. And this is way too technical, but there is a gene that has a coding for a long vasopressin receptor, which is a you know, neurochemical. And that is like the gene that codes for monogamy. Uh, so anyway, you can just follow the, you can follow the science and talk to every evolutionary expert and they'll all tell you that humans are not meant to be monogamous. However, and I think this is where you come from too, Lisa, that as I work through this <laughs> stuff, you realize that like you have a choice, right? You really have a choice and you have an ability to honor your commitment. And if you make a commitment to anything, whether it's a partner or, 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 an, or an exercise program or, or a way of being, and you can't honor that commitment, you can't honor that commitment, then you have to look at what's going on. Why can't you? What's going on in your psychology? So to me, it's just a choice. And if you choose to make that choice, you, you make it. If you choose not to make it, you can discuss it with your partner versus you know cheating or lying. You're not. It's crazy. It's insane. What I thought at the beginning that you're evolutionary coded to do something and you have no control over it. Like otherwise, we'd be, you know, hitting people over the head and taking their money all the time. But you said that you started this project from a self-evaluative place, right? Like wondering what was going on in your own life and your own picker and your own choice mechanisms that would lead you to relationships that ultimately, you know, weren't satisfying or enduring. And, and I'm not so sure that that has anything to do with monogamy, like that the, the infidelity is for, for sex sakes, it happens everywhere, right? But the infidelity is about something I think much deeper that goes on within ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, you, you totally nailed it. Like, and I think that I made the mistake that most people, a lot of people do about everything, which is they blame others or society for problems where they really have to take a look at, them, at, at themselves. So to me, it was, I was sort of surrendering and thinking, I don't know, is it me or is it society? And I found out it was 100% me because when I went into, let's say, more open relationships, more non-monogamous relationships, they failed just as much. <laughs> I was a common denominator. And B, they, they, still, they still cheat. And like you said, infidelity really is breaking the contract that you have with someone else, whatever that contract is. It's Hang on one sec here, because I would argue that it's also breaking a contract with ourselves. Each of us has a, a moral code that we like to believe we live our life by. And somewhere in the, in the back of our minds, 
we know that cheating is not a nice thing. Yes. And however, in each relationship, cheating is something different. In other words, you might be in one relationship, and I think everyone should have this discussion. What is cheating? For some, cheating could be looking at pornography, right? For others, okay, you can go when you're out of town if you make out with someone. I don't care. Everyone has their own rules, their own guidelines, right. their own boundaries. You have to have that discussion because some people put the bar at different places. Some, for some people, looking at someone else is cheating. For some people, texting an ex you know, is cheating, right? So everyone has a different violation of that. So it's not just about what your moral code, your moral code is not to lie, not to break your word, to keep your integrity, but what are someone's expectations and what have you agreed to? Yeah. You know, I think it ties into when we talk about addiction and when people go down the rabbit hole of addiction, the desire is to sort of turn off the suffering in our lives, right? We're we're really ruled by pleasure. We're quite animalistic about this. You know, we want to uh, have all things be pleasurable. We want to have, you know, perpetual happiness, although those states are not possible. So when we're numbing, even if we're using sex as part of the addiction, right? We are trying to take ourselves out of discomfort. Right. And a a failed strategy because we think we're ruled by pleasure, yet, you know, addicts and people I know who, uh, you know, addicts, whether, and again, whether addiction is work, sex, money, exercise, or alcohol and drugs, right? it doesn't really bring that happiness. Like, it doesn't really bring that pleasure. Uh, Someone, one of my, the wise people I spoke to in the book said, you know, you know, it's coming from a wound because wounds bring drama and trauma. They don't bring happiness. Oh, what a, what a great way to put this. So on your odyssey, evaluating your own relationships um, failed and, and then ultimately successful is what I have gleaned. What brought you to the relationship? I think you're fairly newly married, right? You've been married a few years. Yeah, married a few years. We have a three-year-old now. And again, I owe it all to like really doing this stuff. But I think, yeah, and, and that, that really gets us really to the bigger point, which is here's, here's, here was like the eye-opening stuff. The, the eye-opening stuff and the stuff that we're really here to to, to maybe discuss and it's helpful to people listening is that that I under, started to understand in my own case and in the case of others how the style in which you were parented and raised uh, almost programs you for your relationship choices and to such an uh, such an intense degree that literally if somebody says uh, how they were parented I'll tell them how they're how they are in relationships or anyone can do it it's like it's almost like seeing the the, the matrix <laughs> like yeah uh, and uh and and it's and it's pretty interesting. And I don't know if you've come across this word, a word called enmeshment. Yes, I have. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. A lot of people don't know it. Talk about enmeshment, because many of us are prone to this style, relationship style, based upon how we were parented and the family dynamic of not just the parents, but the extended family. Yeah, and I mean, I would, I would say it's a, yeah, it's a loving caregiver. Explain what you mean by, by extended family. Like, I really, and when you say extended family, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, even grandparents. Like, I mean, I see some dynamics in some families, including my own. I mean, I'll use myself as the guinea pig, where, where grandma was like in everybody's business, right? <laughs> and and right. It, it, it created a dynamic that people felt as though they couldn't be autonomous and make decisions and be um, self-governing without this one right. powerful woman's um, edict. Right. And again, and I, I would see that. It's interesting. I would see that. I, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's totally true. But I'd almost see that as a failing of your parent, whoever's mother that was, uh, you know, to set an appropriate boundary to allow them to be not intrusive in their life and their children's life. So I almost see that as a parenting failure of not protecting, <laughs> you know, the child or the family or growing up themselves. But totally true. But I, the main thing is this. The parent of the sex you're attracted to 
uh, your relationship with them generally sets the template for what you'll then be attracted to later. It's our first experience of love. So people always talk about abandonment and, and neglect, and that's obviously a parent who is not there either uh, physically or emotionally. Some people think, oh, my parent was there all the time. I wasn't abandoned. But like, were they emotionally connected? Were they present? Were they engaged? You know, or were they, were they somewhere else? So, so that's abandonment. But then the other side of that is, is enmeshment. And people don't even recognize this as sort of a form of abusive parenting because it almost feels, sometimes feels good to the child at the time. And enmeshment is basically when, so abandonment is a parent's not present for the child's needs. Enmeshment is the child serves to meet the parent's needs. So that takes a whole range of, of uh, shows up in a whole range of ways. One way is maybe the parent, in my case, uh, my mom had a bad relationship with my father. And so she'd just come to me and talk to me about it all the time and use me almost as their surrogate therapist slash, you know, emotional husband, right? Uh, and that happens often uh, yes. when one parent does that. Uh, another way is maybe the parent has... Uh, depression. I remember I interviewed Jay Leno for, for Rolling, Rolling Stone, right, for Rolling Stone, and I interviewed Jay Leno, and he was talking about how his mom was always depressed, and he tried to cheer her up with, with, with jokes, and that's how he became a comedian. But that also is enmeshment if you're trying to, you're, if you ever feel sorry for a parent growing up, that's a sign of enmeshment that's taking place. Or parents are so anxious, that they're just so anxious that they need to over-control you uh, so that they feel better, <laughs> but it's not for your own good. That's enmeshment. So anytime it's their needs first, a narcissistic parent, a depressed parent, an overly anxious parent, a parent with a troubled marriage using you as a, as a, you know, an emotional uh, partner, all those things are enmeshment. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Neil Strauss. To learn more about Neil Strauss and his work, please visit neilstrauss.com, on Twitter at Neil Strauss, and on Facebook, the page is Neil Strauss. The book we're talking about is The Truth, an eye-opening odyssey through love addiction, sex addiction, and extraordinary relationships. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, and we're talking about relationships. I'm talking with Neil Strauss about his latest book, The Truth, an eye-opening odyssey through love addiction, sex addiction, and extraordinary relationships. Neil, prior to the break, we were talking about enmeshment and enmeshed relationships as it revolves around a child who really is placed in the caretaking position of a parent. Really? That's the emotional husband, as you put it. Right. Yeah. So, so in my case, I think this is the eye-opening thing where I remember literally being in rehab and you do sort of a timeline. A, by the way, I really recommend rehab for everybody, not whether you have an addiction or not, because rehab literally, like that, whatever they do has to work because the lives are at stake. You know, somebody could overdose. They could, so many horrible things. They, they're trying to save lives. They just do what works. So I really think it's like if you want intense therapy and, you know, to take a shortcut, um, and there are a lot of rehabs that don't deal directly with what we see as normal as a, as a, as substance addictions. Anyway, so I was there. I remember I was kind of being very arrogant. I thought I came from a perfect family. Nothing was wrong with me. I went through my timeline. And then the therapist starts asking me questions. Has your mom ever approved of your partner? And so I'm like, oh, no, she never approved. She's always critical of them. And she asks these other questions. And then she says, well, here's the reason why you've never been in a healthy relationship. I go, I'm like, why? She goes, because your mom wants to be in a relationship with you. And then I remember like, just, it felt like a cold wind blew over me and my heart kind of like just cracked and I just started like bawling. And I realized like something in me recognized like the truth of that. I was still stuck in this, that she wanted it. Somehow she wanted me for herself so that she had me to lean on. Yeah. Um, and, and that was that moment that it cracked. Now here's the thing, the toughest thing. And so that's enmeshment. So basically the idea of enmeshment is this, I think just to continue what we said before the break here, the shortcut is this. The symptom of enmeshment as it shows up in relationships is that you, if you're in a relationship, you start to feel love starts to feel smothering because you lost your childhood to this. So it starts to feel smothering and you feel like you need to escape. And the more needy your partner gets and what you perceive as needy is, the more you want to just do something else. So you'll might escape into cheating or, or work or anything for intensity and just to get out of it or fantasy, whatever it is. So, so it, that's the symptom. The symptom is like, and it happens to a lot of people. You want to be in love. You want to find love like I was. And then once I got it, it was suffocating again because the old wound manifested. Yeah. Scary stuff. But, but there's an upside here because when we're willing to, you know, dive in and do the work and sort of confront the reflection in the mirror, magic can happen with that work. Right. And that's, and that's the trick. The key word that you're saying, Lisa, is work because here's the toughest part of this stuff is like awareness doesn't make the change. Awareness can be the worst part of it because when you're aware, you'll still keep doing your patterns, whatever you're trying to work on. Like just being awareness means you know you're doing it and then you just get frustrated and feel more shame as you keep doing it. But you actually have to do the work and we can discuss what that is to change. And you're thinking about whether you're, you know, this trauma, this pattern you've been living out is wired into your brain for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. You know, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. Just to fix yeah. it really is a a battle. And I would agree with you that every human being could benefit from the process that goes on at an addiction recovery program. Because I mean, I I work in addiction recovery myself, so I I see it every day. And um, the work that is done in these places is is exquisite. And it brings people home to themselves. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And let me ask you a question about that, which is I really do feel that the programs are too short, but it's hard to get them in there if they're not too short. In other words, I'll ask you this question, which is somebody leaves a program after whatever, four or five, maybe the longest is six weeks. 
like if they don't continue really concentrated focused treatment and just go back to their environment, I feel like a relapse is likely. I don't think that's enough time. What do you think? I agree. I agree. I mean, ultimately, you know, it takes a couple of years to rewire a person's brain in a lasting way. You know, when you look at how our brains get wired and certainly from um, patterns that start early in our childhood, like the ones you're speaking of, how we learn to be in relationship, how we learn about our sexuality, how we learn sort of to play the game of being in relationships. And I'm not even talking about substance abuse, but that sort of like those grooves are set in the brain, right? And then you're breaking that cycle. And neuroplasticity is true. It does work, but it takes time to do it. And in the case of substance abuse, even if there's a love or sex addiction, the brain doesn't recognize that it's getting that dopamine hit from um, a person or a substance or an activity. All it knows is it's getting that rush. And in order to retrain that brain, you need to cool it down, literally cool down the primitive part of the brain that is addicted to the substance because all ability to choose is offline. The prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that governs reason and accountability is out the window. It's switched off. So all we're we're, we're behaving reflexively, very impulsively. And that's the part that takes time, right? You can get anybody off of anything You just lock them up in a facility for a couple of weeks and they're good while they're there. But the minute they go back out, all the stressors, all the dynamics that you speak of are still present. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you need that continued. I find that this has been, this is the formula that's kind of worked for, for, for me is doing really intense closed doors, emotional work because the stuff came in emotionally, not intellectually. So I find that talk therapy just is good for talking about it, but it doesn't really make the change. So that deep somatic, emotional, you know, concentrated work that you're talking about mixed with tools so that when you backslide and you're back in your environment and you feel like that you're at the top of that roller coaster and you're about to go down the hill, if you don't stop right away, you, you're down yeah. in your compulsion. So having good tools to work with when these things happen. And three, the best thing I did, and again, like I think a big issue is like therapy and let's say psychological healing, not even therapy, psychological healing, which we need so much, everybody needs, our culture needs, uh, is like a rich person's game. It, rehab is not cheap. Uh, a really good therapist is not cheap. Uh, insurance yeah. doesn't cover any of this healing. And uh, as I found like a little hack or shortcut for it, which I, which I do all the time, which is I got four men together, uh, four or five, no, I think it's five men. And we meet every week and we all chip in for the therapist. They're all similar guys who are, you know, new, new to marriage, have to, and new marriages and also just had children. And we sit there with a therapist and the group therapy has been studied, studies show it works better than one-on-one therapy. And my, my anecdotal reason is because if one person tells you wrong, you're, you're, you can disagree if one person says you're wrong. But if like, you're with five people and they're all like, no, dude, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're at it again. You kind of have to agree. And so it's a great to, to sit there and know every week I have to be accountable to this group and they'll see right through me. And it's cheaper because all five or six or four of you are chipping in for the therapist. So it's, uh, you know, it's affordable to miss Starbucks uh, you know, that week. That's really, that's actually really, really cool. And the other thing that's cool about the group therapy experience is because we heal when we tell our stories, right? You're in this sort of safe, safe zone with these men and everybody's really talking about their truth. And that builds intimacy, that builds trust, that builds all the ingredients that takes us to that place that we want in our relationships. Yep. And on top of that, you get the support throughout the week because whereas your therapist, you can only talk to at this appointed time. 
uh, you have these four other people you can contact and say, hey, dude, I'm struggling right now. Oh, man, you know, you, it, it, it's the greatest thing. And so I highly, I highly recommend it for people who are sort of sitting on the fence or trying to decide. But you need a therapist. It almost doesn't matter who you get, just someone who's sort of the referee and can call everybody out when you're, when you're, uh, when you're down in your trauma instead of in your you know, best, highest self. Oh, I like that, sort of the emotional ref. Somebody that gets uh, yeah, in there exactly, and calls exactly. you on your stuff. I, you know, and I, I, I have to say, like, as a cool guy, like for you to be able to speak about this and, and how you have helped yourself and how your friends have created community to really foster being the best person and partner you can be. That's cool. I mean, your wives are really lucky, but they probably know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope so. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah, it's fun. It's great. I mean, here's the, here's the two things that were super interesting. One was, and especially because about happiness, I, I thought I was happy before. I really thought I was happy. I thought it was fine. And my friend, who also lives in Malibu and was sort of like a mentor, was like, oh, you don't, I think you don't know what happiness is. And on the other side of all this work, and I was in my marriage, and I would look at my wife and be like, oh, my God, I had no idea like what level of happiness was capable. Just the ceiling was so low that I thought that was happiness before. So it, races, it really was wild. And the other side effect of doing all this work was the parts of myself I didn't like. Uh, like I would have a long fuse that hit the bottom, I get really angry. Like I, you know, maybe scream or like hit a wall or something. Literally, I, would, I just hated that part of myself. And it was, it just disappeared. Something would happen. I'd be like, oh, I used to get angry. It's funny that I'm not getting angry. And I wasn't even working on that. But once I removed that childhood frustration of being trapped with it in this sort of narcissist, one narcissistic parent, one abandoning parent, all the frustration and anger that kind of went, it kind of just disappeared along with it. It was amazing. Well, I was going to ask you about Ingrid. Like when Ingrid stepped yeah. into your life, did you see, did you really see her? Well, the whole reason I went into rehab in the first place was because I cheated on Ingrid. Ingrid's my now wife, then she was my girlfriend. I cheated and I thought, you were saying earlier about operating outside your moral code. And I thought, how could I hurt somebody I loved and cared about? Uh, you know, operate outside my moral code and value system and like ruin my future. So I must be an addict if I'm going to do these things. And that's when I went to rehab. We broke up and I just did the work on myself for me. And then you know, we found each other again and it was a whole new relationship. Wow. And, and you have a child now? Yeah, yeah. We have a three-year-old and that's the, that's the other side effect. It's so good. At, like, I feel like I'm a preacher of emotional healing, but that's the other thing. <laughs> the evangelist. Yeah, exactly. You learn what trauma is and it's changed the way that I'm parenting and simple because you learned there's, you know, you're, I grew up thinking trauma was the, the stuff where, you know, and this is trauma, obviously when some, you know, malicious act of abuse occurs to you. But I didn't realize all the little things that you don't recognize as trauma that they happen day every day, almost lodged deeper because they're repeated 10,000 times. <laughs> and so, so all the little things. And, 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 and so learning what healthy, what's healthy and what's not is maybe a different parent. And just like the simplest example could simply be that if he's upset, you know, he's upset, the child, the baby that's upset. I don't try and distract him to make him happy. Like I let allow him to have his emotion, you know? Okay, you, you know, let him feel, let him be sad, let him be angry. That, that's okay, let's talk about it and let's, let's be, let's allow that anger into the thing that is wrong, you know, and teaching him to deny and stuff his emotions, which as you were saying earlier, Lisa, just that's addiction. Well, you are a gem. We wish we could sprinkle you around the world to teach men 
how to be like cool partners and, and parents like like you. I wanted to. We're out of time, and I wanted to just read. Um, the Independent gave you a little uh, quick review here that says one of the thirty-three books everyone should read before turning thirty. So any of you who are listening, you may be over thirty, but you might know somebody who's young and building their lives and learning how to be in relationship and stepping into love. And I encourage actually everybody to read this book because it's it's a fun good read. The Truth by Neil Strauss, and the truth is an eye-opening odyssey through love addiction, sex addiction, and extraordinary relationships. And maybe you'll come back and hang out with me again because this was so much fun. That's good. I love these discussions. We'll meet for a sunlight, sunlight in Malibu one day. Sun life, sun life or bust. Um, and the website is neilstrauss.com, on Twitter at Neil Strauss, and on Facebook you can find him at Neil Strauss. Thanks, Neil. I'll see you soon. Okay, bye. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Today we're talking about our personal stories, owning our truth, speaking our truth with authenticity, and why it matters. We need to be seen, heard, and understood. And my guest today has done just that. She's written an amazing book entitled Hiding Out, a Memoir of Drugs, Deception, and Double Lives. Tina Alexis Allen is a GLAAD Award-nominated actress, producer, scriptwriter, and playwright. Allen is a cast member of the TV series Outsiders and co-starred in feature films Moving Mountains, Tom's Dilemma, as well as the web series Looking for Kathleen. Alan is also the co-founder of Gina Raffaella Jewelry's mission-driven No More Violence collection. And she's here and she's raw with me, which I love. Welcome, Tina. <laughs> Thank you so much. What a beautiful introduction. Wow. It makes you sort of think about your life, doesn't it, when you hear that kind of stuff? Like, oh, I do that too. <laughs> well, Thank isn't that you. the idea? Isn't yeah. Like, you know, we can to, do it all. That's yeah, the thing. You know, it's we, all possible. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be with you today, particularly on a show like yours, you know, where it, where it is about empowerment and authenticity and happiness, which is the goal, isn't it, in the end? <laughs> in the end, I think it's yeah. uh, it's the one of the universal desires, Absolutely. you know, is to find that happy 
happy spot and we and we seek it out in sometimes crazy ways and sometimes really yeah. healthy good ways talk about growing up in a family with 13 children that is a lot of kids yeah it is you know on the one hand it was incredible i'm also the youngest so that sort of puts me in a in a you know specific position too i learned a lot from my siblings you know a lot of my oldest siblings 15 plus years older you know sort of what they did that worked and things that they did that didn't work so i'm i'm blessed in a way in that position i also uh, in many ways, did get uh, attention, you know, um, positive attention uh, from my older siblings. My sisters became, I'm sure, mothers to a lot of us younger ones. And at the same time, we were a close-knit family. And yet, looking back on it, I can also have to address that that many people, it's hard to get your needs met. That's a reality. You know, it's like my mother was an incredibly loving human being and very gentle um, and yet she only had two arms. So there is that. And thankfully, my older siblings, of course, had to jump in. But yeah, uh, it, it was a busy, chaotic, loving, loud, fun, crazy, and at times really dysfunctional <laughs> place. But we're, we're actually all doing quite well and uh, have a lot of faith, have a lot of love, have a lot of forgiveness for many things that went on, uh, which you'll read about in the book. And that's a great thing because uh, I feel like we're, we're all on the other side of it um, and love each other. And the book we're talking about is Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. So we've got three big Ds that start out in the book with you at around age 18. Talk a little bit about these three Ds. Well, I would say that the the first D, meaning the drugs, was, I'd say, as much alcohol as any, although there were other drugs involved. I had been through quite a bit of trauma, some traumatic events as a child. I grew up at lightning speed. I won't give away things that are in the book too much, but suffice to say that I grew up super fast. So by the time I was 18, I was definitely numbing. Uh, I was a high achiever. I was a, a basketball player. I was on full scholarship at the University of Maryland. So thankfully I had an outlet, but at the same time I was numbing and it, it actually progressed as I got you know, a bit older. And the deception was that I was keeping secrets. One of the secrets I had, I had dated men and women at that point in my life, but I was with a woman at 18 and I was in complete, you know, I was in the closet. I was hiding that, uh, living in a devout Catholic family, like, you know, the quintessential religious, it seemingly religious home. So the deception came from me living that lie. And then when I was 18 and with this woman, she was about 12 years my senior, my father had offered me a trip to Greece. He was a Catholic travel agent. I asked if I could bring a friend along, that friend being my girlfriend, which of course I wasn't telling anyone, but we went out to dinner and the double life comes by, uh, at that dinner, my father picked up on the relationship I was having, which, and he basically outed us. And I was completely, you know, couldn't breathe from fear. He was quite a, you know, rager and tough guy. And anyway, then he proceeded to out himself, which is what the double lives, one of the double lives is about. And that, of course, was shocking on so many levels because, A, I didn't really like him and I wasn't close with him. And now all of a sudden, 
overnight I became his confidant and his carrier of secrets. And as time goes on in the book, I, I get involved in his business and learn that, you know, sort of where did all the money come from? How did, how did a travel agent support 13 kids? So the double life also ventures into this role. He had a secret role with the Vatican. He had a lot of high connections at the Vatican. He, we lived in Washington, D.C., so there wasn't, like, we weren't in Rome. <laughs> and there was always a mystery, like, where did where does all the money come from to live in Chevy Chase, Maryland, private schools, a swimming pool? Like, you know, he's a travel agent. <laughs> so those are the D's. Wow. Yeah. I'm a little speechless here. Yeah. You know, that's that's a lot to take in and a lot for a young woman who's coming into her own to digest. You know, coming to terms with your own sexuality, then being sort of outed by your dad only to learn that there is this thread that unites you yeah. Yeah. in the secretiveness. Exactly. And my dad, you know, like I said, wasn't, you know, wasn't the nicest guy at home. I, he did a lot of good in the world. He was able to really be uh, a committed Christian, if you will, in the sense of really, when I say Christian, I mean, you know, giving and um, supporting those without. He was a big giver um, and and cared a lot. But at home, he was he, it was tough. And I didn't know why. But obviously, this is one of the reasons why uh, he, it was complicated. He was trying to make heads and tails, uh, heads or tails out of how to consolidate his devout faith, 13 kids, a wife, homosexual desire and, and, and living, you know, actually acting out. So I witnessed it all in the book is a roller coaster of, you know, my secrets, his secrets, carrying his secrets, the guilt, getting crazy together, traveling clubs, you know, it, it really takes a wild ride. And, um, and then, you know, eventually landing on the other side and not being able to sustain these secrets, actually, you know, I had a breaking point, thankfully. When did you suspect that your dad had ties to the Vatican, because I think this is a very interesting angle to the story and not your run of the mill everyday story. Oh, yes. my dad's a travel agent and, you know, he's got ties to, you know, the Pope. Well, he always traveled a lot. And I and I mean that, you know, that's not seems like an obvious statement. He's a travel agent. But no, I mean, he was he was gone like all the time, but he did a unique kind of traveling. Like, for example, uh, we have family letters that detail you know, the year. So things would be said like dad went around the world twice this year and he stopped in 19 countries in 21 days. So that's the kind of traveling he did, which to me, eventually I put together uh, much later, of course, but in um, a sense of who travels like that, uh, how does he move through so many countries that fast? And I discovered other things like he has, he had a Vatican passport. And no one has a Vatican passport unless you live in Vatican City. It's a sovereign country that requires a passport for people who live there or perhaps work there. Why would my father have that? And there were, you know, a briefcase of money I, I witnessed. And so I started to discover that to answer your question directly uh, because I started to work at his office. So he offered, he wanted me to, he, and I became his sort of protege, confidant. He wanted me to work in the office. I think there was a period of a few years when we were in this bubble together uh, that he envisioned me taking over the business. 
truthfully nothing I wanted, but, <laughs> but I went along with it, you know, as I did with many things. So I was working for him in the summers while I was in college. And that's where I started seeing uh-huh. some stuff. And I traveled with him. So then he wanted to start having me come with him or he'd meet me in Athens for a few days or we went to Jordan uh, discovering some other secrets when I was there with him and sent me off to Egypt. And so we had these few days in Rome or somewhere here. So I was witnessing some stuff. But the family in general knew he had high ties to the church. But and we always sort of mused now and again, like, do you think dad, you know, is like a secret servant for the Vatican? Or do you think dad works for, you know, it was like, you know, after dinner conversation, if you were away once in a while, and everyone would just kind of be light about it, but not ever you know, really dig. But I started to see some specific things in these years we were hanging out together, so to speak. Um, We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to explore more about the book, Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives. Um, To learn about the work of Tina Alexis Allen, please visit her website, tinaalexisallen.com, on Twitter at Tina Alexis Allen, on Facebook, Tina hyphen Alexis hyphen Allen and on Instagram the same handle Tina Alexis Allen here comes the break we'll be right back and that is a promise who says money can't buy happiness check out Lisa's new book are we happy yet eight keys to unlocking a joyful life and other fun fashionable and inspiring items at shop happy at harvestinghappiness.com we'll be right back after this quick break Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, it's legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about a great story and the book Hiding Out, a memoir of drugs, deception, and double lives with author Tina Alexis Allen. Tina, before the break, you were talking about growing up in a family of 13 kids, your dad being a, I'm air quoting, Catholic travel agent, (laughs) but (laughs) but having this other life with deep ties and intriguing ones to the Vatican, which brings me to ask the question, 
was your dad a fixer? Because that's what pops into my mind. Like, what is this guy doing traveling around the world? I think you said 19 countries in 21 days. That's not normal. No, no, it's not. Uh, You know, I don't think he was Ray Donovan. Uh, He was definitely a, you know, a a slight, um, uh, well-dressed, well-mannered Brit, actually. He was born in in London. Um, I don't think he was doing sort of spy James Bond or, you know, muscling like a Ray Donovan might. What I think he was probably doing was more in the territory of a secret courier, a secret servant. I think the Vatican has a lot of investment in things like anti-communism, uh, certainly during the Cold War when I when it seems to be that my father got involved with the Vatican uh, more heavily. This kind of traveling happened. I found in a family letter, I was been sleuthing um, in a family letter that my dad was uh, in Russia in 1950. Seven or 58. He was also in Yugoslavia, both of them communist countries that the Vatican had no diplomatic relations with. There's some really interesting things, and I do get into this in my epilogue to sort of tie things together. But um, I think he was essentially moving probably documents, maybe money. I did see some of that. He always had a lot of hundred dollar bills, he was a big tipper. Um, and again, for a Catholic travel agent, it doesn't sort of line up, uh, and you add all this up and you go, what was it? Um, but anyway, the Vatican has a lot of investment in things in other governments. You know, they, they are more than a religious institution. As we know, there's the Vatican bank. There's a lot of things that don't get disclosed. And of course, for any of the Vatican's, I guess, promotion of their faith, uh, communism is antithetical to what they want because they want people to be free to have whatever faith that they want, but you know they want to propagate their faith. So that's just one example of uh, what I feel like the Vatican has um, for a long time been invested in that we don't always hear about, but certainly I think my father was involved in those sort of things, particularly in the Cold War, where he did he did a lot of traveling basically in the 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s when I was hanging out with him. And, you know, we talk about the Vatican, and what many people don't know is the Vatican is one of the largest real estate owners in the world as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, The Vatican Bank at one time, I'm not sure where it ranks now, was one of the largest banks in the world, and it's it's hard to calculate how much and you know there's figures that are thrown around in terms of the worth the wealth and the worth of of the vatican uh of the catholic church but yeah as far as landowners i mean they basically own all of rome (laughs) i don't mean just you know they own apartment built they own most of the apartment buildings when you want to get an apartment in rome you're basically your landlord is the catholic church i mean it's beyond just the churches which all over the world which you could just imagine how much land and value that has. Um, But they do have a tendency for secrecy and a lack of transparency, which if if you've ever done any uh, and your listeners have done any sort of reading into the church beyond, you know, the the typical stuff, you you learn a lot uh, of things they've been involved in and, you know, banks that went under people, mafia connections. I mean, you know, it's there, there is that side of it that's well known and you could read about it. 
Well, I'm I'm thinking of that uh, series, the uh, the Young Pope is what's popping yes. to mind. You know that was yes. I, I don't know if you watched it, but it was I phenomenal. Did. You know, yeah. it was really eye opening, and it was reflective of contemporary culture from a political standpoint. You know, which mm-hmm. which this young pope is also emulating a familiar character that many of us might recognize stateside yes. here. Absolutely. <laughs> but certain, certainly the uh, the secrecy and the intrigue of what goes on behind closed doors and uh, beyond the pulpit. Yes. And my father had a, a close connection. He was the papal nuncio of Rome, of Italy, meaning basically the secretary of state. So the person that reports to the pope in terms of any matters that are related to Italy uh, was my father's I don't know if I if I can say point person, but I think was his point person. He knew him for decades and decades, and he'd regularly say, "I'm you know I'm going to Rome for a few days, and then here and then there." But I've got meetings with uh, Archbishop uh, Carboni, which was his name, and um, you know that and that was just I mean that was just like I'm going to the grocery store kind of conversation, yeah. so. We never knew, you know, we wouldn't get into it. But again, once you start putting the pieces together, you're like, why is he going there for another meet? You know, <laughs> how many meetings do you need to have? Like, how many pilgrimages are you sending to Rome? Yes, a lot. <laughs> but why is this guy involved? You know what I mean? What does he have to do with anything? Don't you want to see, like, you know, the bus operator, the bus tour operator instead? <laughs> Well, you know, we, we have a we have a saying around the office here, short meeting, long lunch. You know, it's like <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, in, in, in keeping with the theme of secrecy and being the bearer of secrets, you and your dad had this unique connection through these secrets of your own. And talk a little bit about how your relationship evolved over the years as you stepped into womanhood, sort of finding your place, your career, your passions, your own life and your own relationships authentically. What happened to the relationship? How did it evolve? Well, again, without giving too much away in the book, because some of that will cross over. What I will say is that, you know, my father grew up obviously in a very specific time, you know, uh, almost two generations because I'm the youngest. So really my parents could be grandparents of mine in in the sense of our age difference. But the point is that he obviously grew up in a different time. And as much as I was struggling in the 80s into the 90s with being transparent about whether I was a man or a woman, you know, being transparent about my sexuality, just as an example, that's something I feel he, he, he struggled with. He also, um, he also drank a lot and I'm for, again, probably obvious reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. but that became, you know, that was a problem and it, and I, hence the drugs in the, in the uh, title. I think the simple answer is that I hit a point in my life where I turned a corner and I didn't want to live in a culture of secrecy. And I think that that decision bumped up against who he was and the fact that he probably wasn't going to change. And there became a conflict. So slowly I realized, and not really till much later, but I'd say into my 20s when I started to pull down my mask, 
of all the things and the traumas and my life and, and what, what happened between him and myself uh, in terms of the secret caring. Um, when that started to get pulled down a bit, I needed a lot of time to heal. And I took that path and it created distance because that's not the path he was on. But I dedicated decades to my own healing because I needed it, frankly. <laughs> And that wasn't that his path. So we didn't, you know, we, we found our way back, uh, thankfully. And I do, you know, sum that up, too, in the book, um, jumping some time. But but yeah, uh, I think I did take my own path and make my own way in terms of my own healing. You are a wildly creative human. Um, you have uh, really you're you're so talented actress, producer, scriptwriter and playwright. But you also have a jewelry company that you co-founded. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just want to touch upon this because I, I, I did go and visit no more the No More Violence collection, collection. at Gina Raffaella Jewelry. And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the genesis of, of the jewelry line. Thank you. Yeah, my partner is Gina Raffaella. And we've, we've always sort of wanted to and engaged in being of service in different ways. But we, about three years ago, wanted to do something to give back. And I think, you know, Ferguson happened. A lot of these shootings were, were just sort of snowballing one after the other. I mean, now we, we're in a whole different place. But at that time, it just seemed like, in a way, it was new, the, the level of just how quickly they were happening on top of each other. That felt new. And so we were stunned by it and sort of asking ourselves, what can we do? How do we? And we had gone and heard the Dalai Lama speak. And one of the things he said at Radio City that day was, you know, it's going to be up to Western women to change the world. No offense against Eastern women. It's just that we generally have more freedom and more you know, resources, perhaps. And maybe that's why he said it. I don't know. But the point was, it's up to us. And I I think it's up to everyone. But I do think he broke through something with the two of us that day. And then we create we decided to take bullets and transform them. They're inert bullets. They've been used. So we're not buying anything new and putting new bullets, you know, in, 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 you know, encouraging the, the manufacturing of new ones. So we use inert bullets, we transform them into beautiful pieces of jewelry, some of them statement and a little more badass, but a lot of very beautiful things like butterflies and things that are symbols of transformation. And then we give partial proceeds to nonprofits that support peace, like no more violence, stop violence against women, Moms Demand Action, uh, we've given to, you know, various organizations that support peace in general. So that's that's what we're up to. <laughs> it's well, really wonderful. It's, it's beautiful. I, I love the jewelry as well. So I urge our listeners to uh, visit Gina Raffaella's jewelry. Um, and we're out of time. And I can't uh, encourage you enough to make the juicy read of Hiding Out, a Memoir of Drugs, Deception, and Double Lives, written by Tina Alexis Allen, who is my guest today. To learn more, please visit TinaAlexisAllen.com. On Twitter, you can connect with her at Tina Alexis Allen. On Facebook, that page is Tina hyphen Alexis hyphen Allen. And on Instagram, the handle is the same, Tina Alexis Allen. Tina, thanks so much for sharing just the tip of your intriguing iceberg. I know. It it goes deep. So take a read. And um, I so appreciate your time today. You're so lovely and warm and uh, transformational yourself. Thank you. Here's a big virtual hug to you and our listeners. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. 
We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Neil Strauss and Tina Alexis Allen, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.